Um, in our study through the book of Ruth, as Todd prayed about, we uh, thus far have seen Ruth and Naomi face a lot of hardship, but today we'll find a, a happy text. So you have labored through difficulty, now you're going to enjoy some fruit of your labor, no pun intended. Um, turn with me to Ruth chapter uh, 2, if you have a Bible. If you don't, you should be able to find one underneath the chair in front of you. And we are on page 128 in those chair Bibles, if you'd like to turn with me there. Thus far, we've found Ruth going to glean for food in order to bring it back home to she and Naomi so that they wouldn't starve. And in God's good providence, as we saw last week, she just so happened to come to a field of a generous man named Boaz. So after an entire chapter of tragedy, Ruth chapter 1 is one difficulty after the next, after the next, after the next. Last week we began to see a slight ray of sunshine peeking through the dark clouds that had covered Ruth and Naomi. Today we'll find together a bit of a reprieve from crisis and we'll see the short-term results of Ruth and Boaz's first encounter. And in seeing how God provided for Ruth, we'll see how God continues to provide for us. I hope that you will be encouraged in our time together in the Word. Tara Murphy is going to come read for us, Ruth 2, 17 through 23. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with, with his young women, lest in another field you will be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Thank you. Nobody died in this passage. This is great news. We have seen after the difficulties a time or a season in which there is provision and uh, pleasant days for Ruth and Naomi. Uh, here's a quick rundown of six positive results from Ruth and Boaz's first encounter. The last week we saw them meet, and this week we're going to talk about the fruit of that conversation. I just made a, a list, and I'll just walk through them quickly. This is not a complicated passage. It's straightforward and relatively easy to understand. Ruth and Boaz met, and God worked through Boaz to provide for Ruth. That's essentially what we're told. Here's the things that took place. Verse 17 says that she continued not just in the morning to glean, but she gleaned that whole day. 
Gleaning, you may remember, was the way God provided for uh, the poor. They would follow behind people who were harvesting, and whatever they dropped, uh, they were allowed to pick up and keep for themselves. The end of verse 17, if you do the math, there's some disagreement about this, but the range is somewhere between 30 and 50 pounds of barley was harvested in a single day. This is the equivalent of many, many days, if not weeks of work for the average laborer, and yet this young widow was able to reap all of that in one day. Verse 18 says that she, Ruth went home to Naomi and fed her, and fed her of what she herself had eaten and yet had leftovers. Now we, frankly, I think just breeze past the words after being satisfied. But remember, these are two women with no means to provide for themselves. Two women who very likely were on the verge of starvation. They had a meal, a meal in which they were full. As many of us do not struggle with wondering what we're going to eat next and where it's going to come from. Can you imagine your pantry is empty, your fridge is empty, you don't even have any ramen noodles. You have nothing. And it's been days since you've eaten. You're not sure when that's going to change. There's a real hunger, pain. And yet then in one meal you sit down and eat until you are full. What a picture of God's kindness. Verses 19 and 20, I think, are the highlight of this passage. We find Naomi clearly encouraged. Naomi had gone from losing her home to losing her husband to losing both of her kids. She was a bitter, grumpy lady. She had been hardened by her circumstances. Instead of leaning into God in her suffering, she apparently left her daily love of God. She still believed in Him, and yet there seems to not be a warmness in her heart toward Him. And yet in verses 19 and 20, as Ruth comes home with good news, God uses the kindness shown to Ruth to awaken Naomi again to a fresh, vibrant, hopeful relationship with God. We see this because she blesses the one who had blessed Ruth. She is reminded afresh and anew of God's kindness. We might put it this way, her bitterness was broken by praise. Brothers and sisters, that's how we get out of bitterness. We begin to notice the things God is still doing among us, and we move instead from concentrating on what's hard to instead concentrating on the way God is providing in a new and renewed way for us. She's a great example for us in that way. Two more. In verse 21, we find that Ruth had ongoing protection while she gleaned. And then in verse 23, she was able to keep gleaning the whole rest of the season. Now, in our vernacular, we would say, not only did she get a meal, not only did she get a gift card for several more meals, but she was provided for for the entire rest of the season. 
This would be like someone in our day who's been unable to get work picking up a seasonal job that would provide for all of your physical needs. It would be a wonderful, wonderful turn of events. Ruth had cast herself on the mercy of God and kept going despite trials and hardships. And God had so orchestrated Ruth's decision-making and her step-taking that she wound up in this field belonging to Boaz where she would be provided for in significant ways. Friends, this is the way in which Ruth brings together for us two ideas that so often we have a hard time putting together. The one is that God promises to provide, that we seek Him, come to Him, trust Him, seek first His kingdom, and He promises He will provide our essential needs. And yet, God's promise to provide doesn't absolve us of the need to act. And so, Ruth didn't just sit at home praying. No, she got up and went to find somewhere to work. But even as she worked, she understood the kindness shown to her was not deserved. It wasn't earned. It was rather the humble generosity of God. Ruth is a wonderful text for putting these ideas together that we must grapple with every moment of every day. Trusting God and yet doing the things that God tells us to do. God uses means, brothers and sisters. Those means are often encapsulated by us doing the things that we know God would want us to do. Ruth understood if I don't work, if I don't glean, then I may not eat. And yet she trusted in the one who had to provide if she was to eat. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 12 connect these pieces for us. We read them last week, but just by way of review. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, this is to Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? She didn't, you see, trust in her own work, her own effort, her own diligence, her own rightness to receive from Boaz. Rather, she maintained a gratefulness, a thankfulness, a humility, a gratitude, even though she had done work. Verse 11, but Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father, mother, your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then this rather odd image, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. God the Father is a spirit. He has no wings. And yet the image is so powerful and beautiful. Like a mother bird would stretch out her wings over the nest to shield her little ones from the weather, to protect them from a storm, to even protect them from themselves, climbing out and falling to their death before they're ready to fly. God can be a place of refuge for his people. Now, how is it that Ruth had sought protection from God? Well, chiefly, she turned from Moabite gods to the God of the Bible. She 
turn from idols to the worship of the one true God. That is the chief way through which she sought protection from God. But she also turned to God for her daily need for food. She got up and went to work knowing that I need to find a field, but God's going to have to lead me to one in which I will be provided for. Ruth's shelter-seeking met God's providential shelter-giving in the fields of Boaz. She didn't know Boaz. She'd never met Boaz. She didn't know whose field she was in. She simply did what she knew to do, trusting that God would direct her steps. Brothers and sisters, God sought her out even as she went about her day, unaware of how he might provide. What a picture of how we live daily life. God seeks us out. We go about our business in his strength, seeking to do the things we know he would want us to do. And we do so trusting God to provide. But even more than a picture of just our daily lives and our physical provisions, This is a wonderful picture of how the gospel itself works. God, when we were not seeking Him, when we were daily going about unaware, God sought us. God seeks sinners out. And then God forgives all who turn from sin and turn to Him. We've sung about that grace this morning See, in Jesus Christ, God gives us not merely food for our stomachs that will only sustain us a matter of hours, but God gives us spiritual life that will sustain us for all eternity. When we did not seek, when we were unaware of our need, God was seeking us out. These 30, 40, 50 pounds of barley and the provisions that God provided are nothing compared to the spiritual bounty that God has provided for us in Christ. Now, there's one word in this passage that I think is of unusual significance compared to all the other words. I want to spend a couple of moments focused in on that with you. Look at verse 20. It says, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he, meaning Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose, meaning God, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Redeemers. What is that? Well, today we get just a slight tip of the hat. We get just a brief mention of redeemer. But... This is going to become an extremely important word in the rest of the book of Ruth. In fact, there's only two chapters left, and in those two chapters, the word redeemer or redeem will be used 18 times. It becomes the dominant issue in the rest of the book. Friends, the Bible paints a picture of humanity that is remarkably communal in nature. Those of us in the room who are uh, Westerners, who are from this half of the world, and then those of those who are from Arizona, and then those of those of those 
there's like two of us that are from Tempe. We may miss the communal emphasis of the Bible entirely. But this topic helps us get back to a great picture that God has for us. You see, God designed life not to be lived alone. We are bound up in community. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God is a community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. For all time, they have been in community together. We, made in His image, are designed not to live our lives alone, but in relationship with each other. And not only in relationship with each other, but there's a sense in which, particularly in the church, as it goes with you, it will also go with me. There's a sense in which our futures are bound together. And that's not true just in the church. Friends, there's a sense in which as it goes in Tempe, we are bound together in many ways by what happens in our community. One of the ways the Old Testament got about this image or this truth is through the concept of redeemers. Let me give you two examples. If you were part of an extended family and a family member died, and that family member owned a particular piece of property, and that piece of property went up for sale, it was your obligation as an extended family member to buy that piece of property. Why? Well, because you wanted to keep it in the family in order that the next generation of people would be provided for. Do you see how different that is from what happens today when someone dies? I've done a lot of funerals, and probably in 85 to 90% of the time, I end up having to be not only the officiant of a, a service, but the mediator of a family dispute because they're fighting over the inheritance. It doesn't matter how much it is. People tend to want it for themselves. But God here... In the scriptures, in the Old Testament law, says extended families, even out to clans, which, was, which were collections of extended families, you're to provide for the future by taking care of what had belonged to the family. Now, it wasn't just the dead, though. And this I find absolutely fascinating. If you, let me use myself as an example. If my family was to incur some enormous debt that we could not repay apart from significant change to our lives, in my case, that would probably be a medical debt. And if we were to incur this enormous debt such that we would have to sell off our assets in order to pay it, which would be the percentage of our house that we own. If we put a for sale sign up in our yard, in order to have the money to pay back that debt. Guess who's supposed to buy the house, according to the Old Testament? The same people. The family. The extended family. The members of the clan. They were to purchase that home so that it would stay in the family so that the debt could be met. It's a remarkable picture of the way in which they understood life together 
to be bound up in how we treat one another, even down to physical things. Now, these were Old Testament laws given to the nation of Israel. They no longer apply to us. We are not civil Israel. We are the church. And yet, I wonder if you'd consider modern-day application or implication of the heart that God has for the people of God to care for one another. What a picture of generosity. And so many of you do this well. I would want to affirm the way in which you share what you have in order to provide for others. Now, why did this word come up in Ruth chapter 2? Well, it may be at this moment in the story that Naomi is simply thinking this. My husband's land that we cannot take care of ourselves is going to go up for sale. Maybe this man, Boaz, will buy it. And maybe that will provide for the future. It's possible that is all that she understood at this point. It's also possible that she is hinting at the idea that a redeemer can not only redeem property, but also can provide for people, which we'll find together in the coming weeks. This was what it meant to redeem. Now, the verb redeem is also used frequently in the Bible to talk about the activity of God. Probably the most famous passage comes from Exodus chapter 6. This is when God promised to rescue the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. Here's what he said, Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out, who redeemed you from under the burden of the Egyptians. Friends, very likely the redeeming of property was designed to remind people of the way in which God had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And how much more for us on this side of the cross we see that God redeemed us from our sin, from our slavery. God bought us back. God gave of himself that we might be provided for in Christ. You see, this story about Ruth is not really a story about Ruth. It's about a Redeemer. A Redeemer who would take care of all of Ruth's needs through Boaz. Boaz, in that way, is a picture of Christ. We'll uncover that more starting next week. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to take a couple of minutes to speak directly with you. We would understand from what this passage is teaching, coupled with many other passages in the Bible, that, friend, you are in need of redemption. You may not recognize it this morning. You may feel in many ways as though you have it all together But friend, you are under the debt. You're under the load 
of a sin payment that you cannot possibly repay. The central claim of God over all humanity in the Bible is that God is the creator and we, all of us, are the created. That he made us, that he placed us in his world, and that we are therefore obligated to follow him. This is true of all people everywhere. And yet, we in different ways and to different degrees have all broken God's law. We have failed as creatures to rightly see the Creator and respond to Him. And friend, because of that, apart from God intervening in our lives and we submitting ourselves to Him, we are all morally bankrupt. We have a debt that we cannot meet. The New Testament book of Romans puts it this way, the wages of sin is death. The just payment for our failure to follow the Creator is physical and spiritual death. This is the curse that we're all under. This is the debt that weighs us down. This is the natural consequence for disregarding our Creator. So friend, you need a Redeemer. You need someone to buy you back. You need someone to pay your debt. And don't you know deep down, even if you've never thought of it in these terms before, don't you have some kind of awareness that you have a need? Isn't there some acknowledgement that in the quiet moments of the night, in the deep recesses of your heart, that you know you are a broken person. Friend, that brokenness may certainly have been exacerbated by the lot that you were given. Maybe your parents really were crummy. It may have been exacerbated by the things other people have done to you. You may have faced more hardship than the average person. But the core need is the need not to overcome what others have done to you, but the problem you have created yourself. The problem, the debt of being under the wages of sin. The only hope someone has is for someone who has much greater capital to be willing to give up his capital in order to meet our sin debt. And Jesus, who is perfect in every way, therefore has an endless currency of morality to share. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose again in victory in order that all who turn from their sin and trust in Him can have their debt wiped clean can no longer be bankrupt, but can draw forever from the bounty of God's uprightness, right with Him. This is what Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us, there's the same word, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And later in the same book, 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might have adoption as sons. Because your sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Friend, if you recognize today you're not presently a follower of God, you can, in but a few moments, have your immorality, your sin debt, forever resolved. If you will turn to sin and turn to Him. The result of that will not only be a neutrality morally, but rather a seat at the table of God in which you will be considered as God considers His own Son. This is what the Bible is about from beginning to end. In a few moments, we're going to, as a church, observe the Lord's Supper. And if you're not a follower of Christ, I hope you'll use that time as believers take bread and cup to remember the death of Christ for them. And perhaps even as we take and you pray, God will redeem you in order that then you could show that in baptism and join us in the Lord's Supper the next time. I've spoken to unbelievers in the room for a few minutes. In the last few minutes we have together, I want to speak particularly to fellow Christians. In the first two chapters of Ruth, we have explored together ways in which God providentially provided for two widows. We've seen some hard things. We've seen some tragic things. But even in those difficult things, we found Ruth getting up and keep keeping going even in the context of those great sufferings that compounded one upon the other. And we see today that God providentially directed her steps in a way that she did not know would happen to this field in which she would find a man willing and generous and able to meet her needs. She didn't go looking for that, but overnight, her circumstances of hunger changed. And didn't change just for one meal or for a few, but it changed for an entire season. Remember the picture we talked about earlier. God's protective wing came over Ruth, came over Naomi, and provided for their physical needs. God's protective wing, His kindness, in an instant, changed their circumstances. This isn't like the homeless person who you give a sandwich to. Sure, that's great, but guess what? They're going to be hungry tomorrow again. This is like the homeless person being given a job and a home and clothes and dignity and work. All of that was given to this woman in an instant. 
because she sought protection under God's wing. Now, this begs a very understandable question. It is the elephant in the room. It's the difficulty we have with this text as we think about our own experience. Here's the question. Will God's people always find the kindness of God displayed in changes to our circumstances? Does what happened to Ruth in Ruth chapter 2 guarantee the same will happen to you? Let me put it this way. Is the story of Ruth designed to teach us this? Show kindness to people and faithfulness to God, and if you ask persistently and keep going tenaciously, your difficulties will go away. God's kindness will sweep over you in such a way that all of your physical provisions will immediately be met. Is that what this chapter teaches? More broadly, we could ask, is that what this book teaches? Friends, we have to deal with that question because you're asking it. And if you're not today, then you will in the future. Quite frankly, the answer is no. No. That is not what Ruth 2 teaches. That is not what it models. That is not what anything rightly interpreted in the entire Bible says. God's protective wings when it sweeps over you, Christian, does not always change your circumstances. Brought you to tears already, huh? What does change? Well, in our remaining five minutes, I want to try to address that with you. Brothers and sisters, God always, every time, 100% guaranteed, God always saves those who call upon Him for salvation. Anyone who says, I want to stop going this way in sin and start going this way following God, there is never a person who does that that God in His kindness doesn't redeem. He's 100% faithful to our spiritual needs. He's the redeemer of anybody who genuinely asks Him for salvation. That is what we can count on every single time. But friend, when you seek shelter under God's wing and God providentially directs your steps and you keep going even in hardship, does that mean your circumstances will always change? Is God obligated to give you what you asked? No, he's not. He's not. In our physical health, in our emotional stamina, in the amount of resources entrusted to us, in how successful we are in our careers or in our schooling, in the presence or absence of a spouse, in all of these things, God does not promise you that if you seek him strongly enough, longly enough, powerfully enough, his trust, his providence will provide 
exactly what you desire. Friends, God provides for each of us differently. Salvation is the same. Everything else is different. I've heard of these things called snowflakes. Maybe you've heard of them. Did you know that one snowflake is not exactly the same as any other snowflake? They're all different. That's also true of our relationship with God, of the path that he has for each one of us to walk on. No two people have exactly the same experience in the stuff of life as they relate to God's providence. So we could say it this way. One church member might gather friends and family around her and pray over her. and They might weep together because she hasn't been able to get pregnant. And they might intercede and ask God to protect, to come over her in that way and give them a child. And God may choose in days or weeks to bless with a child. And the church might then be able to watch as that bump grows and then soon a child is held right here and Scripture is read over him or her. Another person in the body, in the same circumstances, might do the exact same thing. Only to never, ever get a positive pregnancy test. One church member might pray to be reconciled to his estranged adult father. You might get a call that afternoon. And that call might literally change the direction that relationship had been going for decades. Another might pray the exact same prayer in the same circumstances and never get that call. One of us who's ill might plead with God to bring healing. And God might choose to use the knowledge of a physician or his expert supernatural intervention. You can wipe out that disease Like that. Just like Ruth had all of her needs met. Like that. While another church member might pray again and again and again and again for God to take it away. And that disease and pain may persist for the rest of your life. How do we make sense of this? This is part of the difficulty of our bound up togetherness. It's that we can find ourselves on our own path with God looking to the right and looking to the left and saying, well, well, why does she have it better than me? Well, why does he have that? Why did God say yes to them? What about me? But friends, our bound up togetherness isn't so we can compare ourselves to each other. It's so that we can help each other. Ming, you think my sermon needs a shortcut. It literally said, suggested shortcuts. 
There is no shortcut on the path God has for you. Friend, how do we make sense of this? A couple of thoughts. The Scripture unequivocally from beginning to end says that God is a good God and that He does good. And He has promised you, brother or sister, that whatever will maximize His glory in your life and speed your Christ-likeness is what God will choose to do. Now, will we always see how the stuff that we're facing connects to God's glory and our spiritual benefit? No. There will be circumstances that we struggle to even continue to see God as good, let alone the things He's dealt us as being a good hand. And yet that is the position of the Bible. God will be glorified in you, brother or sister. And God will make you more and more and more like Christ. And sometimes, as you plead with God, He will intervene in a way that you're provided refuge and your circumstances change. Other times, He won't. But He remains good. There's a chapter in the Bible that illustrates this so perfectly. It's Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is a recounting of many of the people in the Old Testament. And it shows us that you can follow God, love God, obey God, and yet your circumstances will be very different from other people. I want to close this morning by reading Hebrews 11.32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Wow, that's amazing. But same paragraph. There is no change of thought. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains in dens and caves of the earth. The people in the beginning of the paragraph had things remarkably well. The people in the second half of the paragraph had things in many ways remarkably poor. Was God good to the first and evil to the second? Oh, friends. Church. God is always good to his people. 
whether you find some circumstance persisting the rest of your life that feels as though you are being sawn in two, or whether you're made strong and you obtain a promise, God is good all the time. Christians, may we trust May we see the path that He gives us. May we help each other walk the path. And may we be people of faith, even if our circumstances never change. How do we know today that God is for us? Wouldn't there be the temptation in Hebrews 11 for some of those people to look at their circumstances and say, God, I'm sure of it. The Word tells me God is for us, while others, like Naomi, had circumstances in which they said God has been against us. You, if you haven't yet, will be tempted to move from God is for me to God is against me, but what is the truth that can keep you faithful and convinced of God's goodness. It's the cross. We know that God is for us because God Himself in Christ took on the most vile, evil, heinous thing that has ever happened. God met us in our suffering in order that the greatest suffering ever, eternal suffering, The wages of sin is death, so that those wages could be paid forever. If God is for us in that way, who can be against us? Would you stand with me and we will now observe the Lord's Supper together. I'll invite those who are going to observe by passing out the elements to come. And as we uh, sing together, I'd encourage you to use the next couple of moments as the elements are passed, brother or sister, to remember the way in which God has been for you in Christ. Would you consider any sin you may need to confess and do so? Maybe somebody in the room you need to go and be reconciled to. If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Christ, you're a member of some church, we would invite you to take these elements, hold them until after the song, and we'll take together. Man's going to lead us as we sing and we remember the way in which God is for us in Christ.